You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 2nd of November 2019 on Monocle 24. Saturday the 2nd of November. This is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to the show. Coming up on today's programme, British voters will begrudgingly return to the polls next month. But will the vote do anything to break the Brexit deadlock? Plus, all life is here. We'll be asking how journalists go about writing obituaries for the good, the bad and the ugly. All that in the weekend newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and today I'm joined in the studio by Quentin Peel, who's an Associate Fellow at the Europe Programme at Chatham House here in London and the broadcaster, journalist and regular Monocle 24 contributor, Joy Lodico. Welcome both. Settling down with hands full of coffee, paper and there's some pretty good shorthand over there, Quentin. <laughs> I've spotted it. I can see it coming. That's a good smile. Um, right, while we're all being distracted slightly by the fact that that the Rugby World Cup final is carrying on. We shall pretend that it is not happening and focus instead on something probably rather less fun. First up, buy the turkey, wrap the presents, thumb through the main political party's election manifestos. Christmas choirs and canvassers will be battling it out for our attention on the doorsteps this December as the UK holds its first winter general election for almost a century. Joy, how did we get here then? Oh, golly. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was it was various people playing various games of poker on separate tables, and eventually somebody somebody had to d- vote for something positive. And um, Corbyn relented on the election, the Labour leader, only after Joe Swinson came out and spotted that she could do the thing that nobody else wanted to do, which was have an election, even though Boris was calling for one. But essentially, we have gone into a kind of Alice in Wonderland, everything is inverted world. Um, the calling of an election on December the 12th is incredibly unusual. It's, uh, I think, the last time it happened was in about 1923, 1924. Nearly 100 years ago. Nearly 100 years ago. And there was, uh, I was in a taxi the other night, and the cab driver said, oh, I've just been listening to LBC, and uh, there was somebody who called in from Stockport who said, what, an election? In December, I've got my Christmas shopping to do. And so I think, it, in a strange way, it may rebound on the political class because we do care about politics until we've got something more important to do, which is our, <laughs> our wrapping. Joy makes a very good point here, is that a lot of us are pretty fed up with this already. Um, I made a quiet decision on Monday that I've actually stopped understanding anything about what's going on nowadays, which is quite hard in the job that I do. But, it, you know, if I've got... If my appetite's waned, Quentin, what about... John from Stockport. It's, it's it's a real problem for the for Britain and for the political classes, isn't it? I think we're really torn between horror at the whole thing, dragging on and on, and and despair, uh, and actually total fascination because it is a country in meltdown. So you're torn between these two things. Now, okay, we're the political wonks, so we are fascinated. But I think actually even ordinary people uh, may, we just don't know, will they turn up and vote or will they say, I'm so fed up with it all, I won't. So you are caught between very conflicting signals. And when the thing was announced and I saw the first sort of party spokesman go on, 
my heart really sank because I thought, God, the worst thing is now they all go back on message. They just say what they've been told to say. And then, wonder of wonders, it all started falling apart quite quickly. So we are in an extraordinary moment. What exactly are we voting for at this time of the year in this time? Joy, I mean, everybody is plowing their own furrow about what they want this election to be about. Labour has said it's about jobs and this, that and the other, but everybody else is saying it's about the B word. This is the reason why Boris Johnson has called this election. The only way he thinks he can get his Brexit deal over the line is if he has enough support in Parliament, which at the moment he doesn't. Well, um, hilariously, he for having called an election that is meant to sort out Brexit, he's barely mentioned Brexit and he's been um, plugging away at the... I mean, the election hasn't started yet. It doesn't start till formally until Wednesday. But he's, his videos and his campaigning so far has all basically been about the NHS. What's got confusing is so we've got um, Boris Johnson trying to push through his deal. Labour still campaigning on the NHS jobs. You know, the Tories don't care about us. But these two um, parties, the Brexit Party, which is um, a kind of UKIP on steroids, but actually I think with a little bit less racism inside it than UKIP did, and the Liberal Democrats, both of them have taken these uh, extreme top-line positions on Brexit. Um Joe Swinson triggers the election by saying, actually, this is our possibly our only chance to remain and we're going to come out and ask for a full revocation of Article 50, essentially an erasure of the last three years of history. Farage came out yesterday and he gave a fantastic platform speech where he basically did the Remainers work for them by saying... Boris's deal is dreadful. Have you read the detail? It's absolutely awful. It's all the Remainers have been saying quietly. And he just went out and said it and said, come and vote for me instead. He's quite, uh, although he is a kind of libertarian style Brexiteer, a lot of the people in the Brexit party are actually much more communitarian, subsidiary, subsidiary kind of uh, believers. And so what was going on on stage was, in fact, a very odd mixture of kind of socialism plus um, high Brexitism. And it was... You know, they may capture, I, I think they'll capture a, a more attention than we expect. And the point Joe, Joy has just made there is the fact that everybody, if you are in the middle or a moderate, seems to have left the floor. It, everybody is is campaigning from positions of polar opposites, Quentin. I think that the uh, we've seen that the Conservative Party has swung hard to the right in spite of the fact that Boris Johnson is perhaps in his heart more of a centrist, but he's thrown all his uh, ambitions to the right and they're running the party as a hardline Brexit party. And, of course, Jeremy Corbyn has pulled the Labour Party right across to the left. There is a huge middle ground out there and the question is, is anybody going to pick it up and win it? I'm afraid I don't I don't agree with this idea of a middle ground. I think it's like those quadrant maps as to are you pro-EU, anti-EU, socialist, anti-socialist and everybody's falling into those. So I would say the Liberal Democrats aren't that middle ground at the moment. They're actually quite radical in calling for the revocation of Article 50. But one of our kind of great British commentators, Matthew Paris, who everybody reads on a Saturday, is in the Times saying actually after 50, he used to be a Conservative MP, um, and he's always regarded as a reasonable and moderate man. And after 50 years, he's quit the Conservative Party and has now become a Lib Dem himself because he's so infuriated about what's happened to the Tories. I think one of the most worrying things, though, is the number particularly of wonderful, sensible women in Parliament who are quitting. Um, who are saying, I just can't stand this anymore. I can't take it. And uh, that's very depressing because if Johnson fights this election as a, I represent the people against Parliament, that is fantastic. 
fantastically dangerous. And they, when people say this is the most consequential election for a long time, at one level it may not be. We may end up with just a hung parliament again. It may do nothing to, to prove anything. But at the un- other level, it is actually about our democratic system. Is this you know, parliamentary, binary parliamentary system, Labour and Tories, actually really going to survive. There's an amazing statistic from one of the women who has quit. Uh, So a number of MPs have quit, but women mid-career are quitting. And one said that I used to get about, I know, maybe two or three kind of death threats a week into my office. I now get 200 a week. So every single day you have this abusive emails going on. People have got padlocks fitted, you know, really strong security locks fitted to their houses, bomb-proof letterboxes. This is not in any way normal. And it's not very British, some people might suggest. It's not the way that we are... Well, none of this is very British anymore, but this is not... I think many of us had hoped anybody would ever think like this anymore. This is a, a this is a sea change that I think has surprised it surprised me an awful lot. Just the viciousness and the nastiness of the of the positions that people are adopting now. Yeah, I was I was jostled the other day when walking towards a demonstration in Parliament Square and a very nasty bunch of shaven-headed heavies who had been drinking outside a pub were shouting at everybody were effing traitors and that sort of stuff and pushing and shoving. It was very nasty. But, you know, the situation reminds me in a strange way of when I was correspondent in Russia at the time of Gorbachev and you watched the institutions of a country falling apart in front of your eyes. The whole thing was in meltdown. The Communist Party was in meltdown and so on. And I feel that sometimes looking at my own country where calling into question some very fundamental things about our country. And when you have a joker like Johnson, sort of running on mockery of it all, running on, oh, well, it's all a jolly good jape. That really is, I fear, what worries me most about this. And you think of kind of Obama and Tony Blair and how somehow or other, however much you disagreed with them, they commanded the respect of the country while they were in office. And you know, even if you go back to the kind of great anti-Iraq war movements, he was still, you know, backed up and respected by Parliament for much of it. And now I just think, you know, Boris Johnson has never had the votes. I don't know if he's going to get the votes on this round. I think none of the election forecasters know. I think also the other thing that's going to be happening relatively shortly is that Parliament itself is a building that is crumbling and actually desperately now needs some works. And so in the middle of this, we get the kind of visual representation of the collapse. John Curtis, who's one of our great pollsters, says this is probably the first time we're going to uh, have an election where there are more than a hundred independent, or uh, not independents, people not aligned to the two main parties, and you begin to see that this may be the space at which our two-party system really is breaking down. Which is where we possibly can look to other countries, perhaps, to say, well, they are having other other nations force themselves into coalitions. We had a go about nine years ago, didn't quite work out <coughs> the way that everybody hoped it would, but are we, could we possibly look at a point where? there may be something conciliatory out of this because as, as it stands the way that we're looking at it now there isn't anything is there quentin no i think it, it, it was a it's 
it was an aberration at the last elections when when we actually got both the major parties getting 40%. It was weird. It was counterintuitive. We're in a situation now with at least five, six parties in Parliament and no clear majority for either side. It has to be coalition government. But the British mentality is not for coalition government. We're for shouting at each other across the red lines in the House of Commons. So we don't do it and we're going to have to learn. And I think the other problem we're going to have is we're going to end up with a very disunited kingdom because partly Scotland will go virtually entirely Scottish Nationalist Party. Northern Ireland, uh, our links with them have somewhat been um, tarnished by Boris Johnson doing over the DUP. But the Liberal Democrats do stand a chance in a number of seats and they are, again, rather localised into the southwest and south of um, England. So suddenly you get parties which do not cover the entirety of the United Kingdom. It is geographical and all sorts of tensions are going to rise about that as well. I'm, I think that Brexit is an existential threat to the cohesion of the United Kingdom. I think if Brexit happens, and it still could, but it hasn't happened yet, I think You're Scotland smiling when you will vote that, for independence, and I think Ireland will actually become a united nation. There is that issue, though, with Brexit, and the fact that the longer that it has not been delivered, <clears throat> excuse me, the more polarised the positions can get. Um, if you are a Brexiteer, your heart is breaking every single day that your democratic right has not been exercised. Um, if you are a Remainer, however, arguably, albeit hopefully in a positive way, you, you embrace the chaos because the longer this thing is drawn out, the less chance that this thing is going to happen. Well, we're in that situation, I think. I was asked a couple of days ago, and what about January the 31st? Do you think that's a real deadline? And I said, I've never thought any of them were real deadlines. This thing is going to go on and on and on. The only problem is, I think, that our partners in the EU27 are starting to get pretty fed up with this. And uh, they're starting to say, look, for goodness sake, just, you know, make the final decision. But we are in this extraordinary tension where, you know, what Joyce talked about, the regional splits, the national splits, everything is divided in a way that doesn't add up to a decisive moment. And there is not, in that in those quadrants, there is not one person who can walk on stage and say, now everybody, settle down, calm down, let us go back to the original issues. What was really wrong when you voted for Brexit? And nobody can do that because they have to win their particular quadrant and try and steal territory from others. We're looking forward to that moment. You're listening to the Monocle House View with Emma Nelson, joined in the studio by Quentin Peel and Joy Ladico. Now, this week, the Washington Post was forced to rewrite the obituary for the leader of Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, after it described one of the world's most wanted, most extremist terrorist figures as an austere religious scholar. The paper was also accused of focusing on al-Baghdadi's academic career rather than his role at the helm of IS. Uh, this was rather an odd editorial decision. Who wants to start on this? <laughs> it really is, you know, embarrassing moments of obituaries. They can actually, obviously, you know, really wrong foot you. Particularly, of course, obituaries that are published before the person has died, mm. of which there are one or two apparently famous moments, like for Mark Twain, I think. I'm not sure it was ever published, but he, it was almost published and, and pulled at the last minute. Um, Rumours of my death are somewhat exaggerated, I think. But he um, Baghdad is not the only one who's had this. There was a, a, a hoo-ha over The Economist running an obituary of Osama bin Laden in which it noted that he liked going to the beach with the, with his children and he enjoyed uh, particularly eating yogurts and honey. And everybody went, I'm so sorry, this man is a mass murderer. Do we really want to know about his eating habits? And 
But the, the obituaries defended it and said, look, I actually had to put, make this person into a human being. You know, no person is just one thing. They, there are shades of humanity in everybody. And even the, and even the, the, the Telegraph, which we'll, I'm sure we will want to move on to because they sort of occupy a very special place in the world of obituaries. I mean, when they were covering Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, they said uh, he's died aged 47 or 48, apparently by his own hand, was a former religious scholar and keen football player who emerged as a leader of the Islamic terrorist group IS and became one of the world's most wanted men. The bit that we all remember from that is the football <laughs> player. And it's an astonishing balance of humanising a monster, isn't it? Yeah. it's. I mean, the, let's not lose sight of the fact the obituary is a rather Anglo-Saxon invention, American-British. Uh, a friend of mine who was uh, on a German newspaper for a while said he tried to introduce the concept in Germany and they were appalled, the other journalists. They said it's disrespectful to write about people at this moment of their lives. And so what is it all about? Actually, a good obituary is a good story. And another colleague of mine at the Financial Times said the best obituaries are actually the ones about people who aren't very well known, who actually, but whose lives tell a story. And the, the boring ones, all those endless ones about Hollywood stars and their multiple and, and, marriages. And brigadiers. Yes, yeah. which, are, which are ghastly. So you could pass on from those. But where you get something that just catches a moment or, or so on, um, then I think they're really worthwhile. Yes, I my, my favourite one from the Telegraph is somebody called Flossie May, who ran a very old-style pub up in Cheshire. And this is the days before the pub actually had a bar. It just had a wall with the drinks on it and a little till. And she got so... She took it over from her parents. She got so old that she basically sat in a rocking chair in the evenings by the fire. Her The pub-goers would put a blanket over her knees. They would put the money for their drinks. They'd pour their own drinks, put their money in a jar. At the end of the evening, they would cash up, turn off the lights, make sure she had enough fire to get her through the night, and she would just fall asleep there. So they ran the pub. It was... the most delicious obituary of you know a community and how they look after their and elderly. also a bit of career inspiration yeah. as far as I yeah. can see. I mean, the, the Telegraph for me always says it does it for me. One of my favourites that I was looking at was Roy Dommert, who, as well as being the rocket scientist in charge of our Cold War nuclear arsenal, was also a fanatical Morris dancer. <laughs> <laughs> you That's found, lovely. You found a beauty, well, didn't you, Quentin? There's one I'd love to share, which I, my son brought to my attention last night, which is the when an obituary can be total vitriol, and this. This is the wonderful obituary written by Professor Richard Evans about fellow Professor Norman Stone, who died earlier in the year, which he begins, one of the specialities of the historian Norman Stone was character assassination. And then he proceeds to absolutely have a go at him at a time when malice and rudeness were highly prized by some right-wing Cambridge dons. Stone outdid them all in the abuse he hurled at anyone he disapproved of. But he Finishes up, knowing that he did little research, never bothered to check his facts, and relied on his literary flair to mask his mistakes, the publishers got serious historians to go through his texts. One of them sent in a 20-page list of errors. So it is absolutely devastating. People can unpick you, can't you? And you don't have a you don't have a right to reply by this stage. Arguably you're past caring. But just to have that sort of kind of hatchet job done on me, I don't think I'd I'd rather be, I'd rather be forgotten. 
happen? <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. I think that's a glorious obituary. It meant you, you meant something. You stoked emotions in somebody else. Well, yes, yeah. you would notice. The other one I absolutely loved, which is perhaps a little bit more obvious, is the the one about Yogi Berra, the wonderful <laughs> US baseball legend, because it was such a great opportunity to repeat all his all his mis- malapropisms and misspoken words. It, it, it begins, it must be endlessly debated, this was in the FT, whether his greatest contribution to American life was to the national sport of baseball or the mangling of the English language. <laughs> and then you get those wonderful statements like, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, or it's deja vu all over again. I mean, he was a splendid human being. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson, Jory Lodico and Quentin Peel. In a moment, we look at the weekend newspapers. Stay with us. Monocle's designed Focus November issue hits newsstands on October the 17th and there's plenty to discover from all around the world. First, we venture into the Syrian capital of Damascus, where the military battle is over, but a different war continues, and meet those trying to find their way back to normality. Second, learn how bookseller James Daunt has successfully turned the UK chain Waterstones around and is now tasked with changing the fortunes of Barnes & Noble, the last remaining chain bookshop of scale in the US. Third, we take a first look at Kumanuma, a former factory-turned-culture centre in the suburbs of Paris, where gallerists are creating a new artistic community away from the crowds. Renovated by French architecture firm The Freaks, this space will host private galleries, an artist's residency and exhibitions. Fourth, our design-heavy issue not only features our top 20 furniture picks, we also sit down with some of the world's most talented architects, including John Paulson and Bjarke Ingels, to talk extraterrestrial infrastructure and minimalism. Monocle's November issue is available to order at monocle.com or do the wise thing and subscribe now. Welcome back. If you just joined us, a very good morning to you from Midori House. This is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson, still with me in the studio, Quentin Peel and Joy Lodico. And we're going to have a look through the day's newspapers. Joy, where do you want to go first? Well, there are various stories around in the in the UK. Sorry to bang on about the British election, but out of the blue, Boris Johnson has banned fracking in the UK, which is you know, delightful for various green campaigners. There's also been a couple of incidents where fracking is thought to have caused earthquakes to the 2.3 in Blackpool, which happens to be a target area. But the thing that ties in with that story is a report in the Times today, which is that in fact uh, fracking is um, not proving as lucrative as it used to, and uh, shale, the shale boom prices have failed. Uh, shale boom has failed to keep up with prices, so the price of oil has gone down, and therefore this kind of rather expensive um, form of extraction um, has uh, of, the, of the gas is in fact no longer necessarily financially that viable. So it's quite handy to have those two things together. And I'm sure Blackpool will think, oh, Boris has done our thing for us, whereas in fact... Blackpool going Tory, going all because yeah, of fracking. What do you think of that, Quentin? Well, I, I must say the whole thing is it's one of the things that makes one a bit despair about politics, how cynical people can be with pulling rabbits out of a hat. That, you know, 
standing your entire policy of the last 10 years on its head at the last minute just to win a marginal seat in a particular place. It, it's, it beggars belief. And there are some counter-arguments about fracking, which is that, in fact, it produces jobs in areas where a lot of jobs have gone. In fact, those those areas that were mining districts are the ones which have got this sort of extraordinary kind of a, a, you know tectonic action going on under the surface where you're more likely to find shale gases. So... You take away. You take profit away from that. nature. You use nature to help you, as yep. opposed to working against it. Uh, Quentin, what have you found in the papers this morning? Well, of course, the very fact that we're sitting here today at this particular hour means that I am being denied the joy of watching the rugby match. I am acutely aware of your pain, <laughs> Quentin, and, and very grateful for you being here. Um, However, thank I, you. Inevitably, one's eye is drawn to sort of headlines of, of, of nationalistic tub thumping. England expects is on the front of the Daily Telegraph with a sort of picture of Owen Farrell, the England rugby captain, smouldering good looks and so on. And and uh, there will be people watching it for all the wrong reasons today. I quite think Quentin. possibly Not those who and don't quite understand the rules but do quite like what should we describe as a spectacle. Yes, but uh, they, they, I must say I despair. I, I fear that uh, when I'm watching sport, I want to see hate to say it, the best side win or the best sportsman win. But unfortunately, the British media, when they're covering sports, only cover the British angle. So here is a fantastic South African rugby team with a black captain. Wow, that really is something for South African rugby. So, I mean, obviously, may the best side win. Okay. Last week, if I they're watched... In, if they're British, English, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I watched the English play the, the All Blacks last week, and that was a truly wonderful football match. And I I don't usually like the way England plays rugby. It's like a machine, but they were amazing. I suspect today's won't be as good. Joey, what have you gone for? Um, You're checking your score, don't you? You asked me about the rugby, and I was like, oh, Christ, this is the one sport I cut. I, I have nothing to add. I wouldn't do that to um, you. I'm afraid I'm actually a fan of this rather old-fashioned um, rugby league, which um, oh. I enjoy a little bit more than rugby union. It's a bit more fluid, and the boys have got a much nicer V-shape on them. Um, <laughs> uh, my... Um, favourite story actually is the uh, in the Times today and the headline is Why Sex and Lies Really Are Natural Bedfellows and it is a study uh, published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology which explores what they call sexual priming. So you get to f- you fill in a questionnaire and then you go and meet a person and the questionnaire is sort of things like what your, what your personal habits are. When you go and meet a person and they start asking you roughly the same questions, it was just Quentin and I having a conversation, I would probably tell you the truth. However, if I was told it was somebody who was interested in me, I would start adapting my answers by trying to figure out what the things they would what they would look for in me and what they would respect in me and what may make them a sexual partner. And so that is the point at which your, your sex drive meets a, a, an aptitude to lie and you change yourself. I mean, we know this from dating profiles already, where, in fact, you're having to do it raw. Literally, you, oh, yes. So when I was does the truth that, come out? Well, yes. the truth, in my, in my knowledge, <laughs> Your first row. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it normally takes about 18 months for uh, <laughs> for the, the real truth to come out. I think some of us move a bit faster than that, don't you think, Quentin? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything that lasts 18 months nowadays. <coughs> I think I remember when uh, one particularly gruesome celebrity couple divorced, a friend of mine said, I've got yoghurt in my fridge, which has lasted longer than that marriage. <laughs> 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 uh, one thing that really drew my attention was the Tutankhamun exhibition here in London. It's all on the front pages. Um, I was very lucky and I went along to it yesterday and I was 
absolutely knocked sideways by it, not just by the exquisite nature of the, of, of the exhibits on show, um, all over every single front page, but also the fact that they've, it is a blockbuster, um, uh, a huge blockbuster exhibition. It's on a world tour. And the point was made in the exhibition that actually in the 1960s, the Tutankhamun exhibition then was the great blockbuster museum tour. My mother has the still has the programme from it. It's, we did not have many books in our house when I was growing up, but one was the Tutankhamun catalogue, and it was sort of worshipped as the kind of great cultural artefact of the Ladiko household. And you had this, and, and of course, and, and this is what has turned out the way that we go to the uh, the way that we go to museums for. The first thing you ask is, is it going to be child friendly? Can I take my mum to it? And this is full, absolutely chock full of uh, sort of all whiz bang stuff, as well as the utterly exquisite exhibits but isn't it a bit overwhelming so the, the trouble is so many people are trying to get in that sometimes you can't get close to the stuff to see it they say That's 300 people every 90 minutes will yeah. be going through this yeah. this year very briefly um quentin what have you got about uh, the gdr and a newspaper yes i i was my eye was caught by uh, my dear old newspaper the financial times has a lovely piece about the fact that neues deutschland the communist party newspaper of old east germany is still getting going strong and still uh, speaking up for socialism. And it, it's a lovely reminder of what happened the day after the Berlin Wall came down, because I was sitting in Moscow. Here in East Germany, you have a newspaper which at the bottom of its front page, and remember, the Berlin Wall came down the day before, the biggest sort of geopolitical event of the decade or more, there was a little story that said, lots of traffic at the border crossing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how the Russians covered it too. Little local difficulty in Berlin. <laughs> nothing to worry about. So the denial of a newspaper. Here is a splendid newspaper that lives its entire life in denial of the real world. And does it still live in denial? I think it sort of does. Although now, of course, the the linker, the left wing in, in East Germany, are the representatives of the anti-establishment. They're now actually going for it. And this is the upset to German politics. It's actually quite uncomfortable that East Germany is going for the far right and the far left. But the traffic has been sorted out. <laughs> the Just traffic at the German and the, and the Berlin Wall flows quite yeah. freely. <laughs> Quentin Peel and Joy Ladiko, many thanks for your company for today's programme. That's all we have for today. Our supervising producer was Rhys James, our researcher Will Higginbotham and our studio manager was Nora Hole. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Many thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>